You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mark Richardson is a motorcycle and auto editor and writer for the Toronto Star. His new book is Zen and Now, On the Trail of Robert Persig and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Hey, it's my pleasure, Rick. Mark, I'd like to ratchet back and tell me about the very first time you read or tried to read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. How old were you? You mean the first time I started to read it? (laughs) Yeah. When this book first began on me? Uh, I would have been a teenager. I'm not quite sure what. It would have been probably 15 or 16. I found it. um, My aunt had bought the book. She's never read it. She just was one of those people who bought it because it was cool to have it. And uh, I found it on her bookshelf at her home in Montreal. And I pulled it off because it had a picture of a motorcycle on it. And I liked motorcycles at that time. So I pulled it down and started to read it. And I thought the first two or three pages were great. And I got probably, I don't know, 20, 30 pages into it. And then he, uh, the author, Robert Persig, starts to riff off on, uh, you know, uh, trying to prove the material existence of ghosts. That's the first one, yes. And I, I kind of tuned out at that point, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, so you're 15 years old or so. You try to read this book. Um, what drew you back to a, a, a second try? Well, the second try, I've worked this one out. It was about 10 years later. And I was studying philosophy at university and not really doing very well. I'm not really enjoying philosophy. I'm not a philosopher, but I thought I'd give it a try anyway. And uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is a book about philosophy. So I, I thought, oh, I might be able to, you know, I'd get two birds with one stone with this one. So I started reading it again. And this time I read it very closely. Like I tried, I read it like a textbook and I took in every single sentence and sometimes you'd have to read the sentence six times over to make sure that you got the difference between Plato and Socrates or whatever it was. And I only got halfway through the book at that time. Um, and then, you know, something else came up. It had taken me uh, probably a month, two months of reading at that point, and I found something better to do. Now, did you ever actually read the whole book? And when was the first time, at least, you read it? Well, I'll have you know, Rick, that, that the majority of people that I've spoken with tell me, oh, yes, I know that book, but I never did read it. Or I started to read it, and I didn't get very far. Those people, and now this is new to me, those people who have read the whole book, the majority of them said it took them three times to do it. Uh, Not two or four times, but three times, just like myself. Interesting. Yeah, for me, the third time came, I guess I was 40 years old, and I I had a wife and kids at this point, and uh, I had a little bit more experience behind me. And I took the book off the shelf. I found it there. I knew it was supposed to be a good book and that I really should read it. So I, I was going on vacation. I needed a book to read on vacation. So I, I pulled it off the shelf and I read it on vacation. And to be honest with you, when I got to some of the tough bits, I, I kind of skimmed over them a bit and just sort of jumped ahead. I was determined to finish this book. When I got to the end of it, I found I'd really enjoyed it. And and I, I didn't even put it down. I turned it right from the last page back to the first page, and I read it right through one more time, not stopping on anything or skipping over anything, taking in everything, and enjoyed it immensely. 
Now, you're in your 40s when you did this. Were you, you were a motorcycle rider and, and you were working for a paper and kind of motorcycle guy for the paper. Tell us a little bit about that journey for you. Well, I've always ridden a motorcycle. Um, I don't know why, I just have. Ever since I was 16, I got my license and I didn't have to pedal to get places. And I thought that was pretty fun. I never got rid of my motorcycle. Other people did and got cars and or whatever, but I just always kept it. And then... I, eventually I became a, a journalist and I ended up with a fairly highfalutin job at the newspaper. I was uh, you know, in charge of opinions and um, editorials and fi uh, major features for the weekend paper, this sort of thing. But on the side, I always wrote a column about motorcycles because it was just something I liked to do. I liked to write and I liked to ride motorcycles. And this was a good way to justify to my wife that I could keep riding a motorcycle even though we had kids who were too young to ride on the back. So because of that, I, I, I sort of wrote, wrote about motorcycles for, uh, oh, for five years or so, and then they offered me the job as the actual editor of the whole section of the paper, and it's a very big section. It's 40-something pages with 20 stories a week about cars and stuff. So I had to give up the motorcycle column at that time because it didn't really do to have the editor of this massive car section going on about cars are bad, motorbikes are good every week. So I... I gave up the motorcycle column, but I carried on writing, and I still write a column about this and that and, you know, whatever strikes my fancy. But I don't know about you, but um, I, I can write a thousand words pretty easily. I don't have to think very much to write a thousand words. I can write, and probably do it in two hours. I can write 500 words in probably three hours. Um, but I really wanted to know if I could write a book, a hundred thousand words, and make word number 78,322 match up with word number 17,006. It's a big undertaking, and I would wanted to know if I could do it. People had always told me, oh, you should write a book sometime, Mark, you're a great writer. And this was, uh, this was just something that I had to do. And I can tell you, Rick, now that I have actually written a book and it's taken five years from conception to now, uh, I can die happy. Tell me a little bit about your your involvement in the these the Persig pilgrims this is a fascinating subculture i never even suspected it would exist but when you think about it it makes sense i had no idea either i i just i decided that that i was going to do this road trip and originally i was just going to do it as a road trip i wanted to get out of my bike and get away for a while and see if the grass was greener on the other side of the fence and see if it was all I remembered it as being when I used to head out on my bike and be free and easy uh, 20 years previously. So I researched the road trip, the Robert Persig trip, because in his book he's very precise in some places and he's very vague in other places. So you can sort of figure it out. But I went online and, and started chipping away at it and discovered that all these other people had done this before me. And in fact, you could download maps that showed you exactly what they believed to be the route which progresses a little bit more and a little bit more every year as people find new places that are actually mentioned in the book. They're very excited at the moment because uh, there's a motel in California that's always been unknown where he stayed uh, just before the scene of the resolution. It's, and all he says is there's apple orchards at the bottom of it. And uh, somebody just discovered that motel. And these various Persic pilgrims online, they're all got very excited about this, that now, now that one can be put on the map too. Well, where is it? It's somewhere near, um, it's, it's north of Eureka, south of Crescent City, as I recall. I can't remember the name of it. You have to go online to look.
Now, these uh, Persig pilgrims, before you went on your journey, did you interview any of them or talk to any of them personally? Yeah, there were, um, I think there were three main people who, who helped me with the research for this, who showed me the right route, um, who, who all maintained websites of, of some sort. And, well, two of them at any rate had, had done the trip or at least a portion of the trip. Uh, there was Dr. Henry Gurr, who has probably the biggest website of them all that's devoted to, to Robert Persick. Uh, he's a um, retired physics professor in, um, in, in, I think it's South Carolina. Ian Glendinning helped me a lot with some basic research into Persick's life because Ian had been, Ian's like a rocket scientist normally, right, who maintains his, his Cybertron blog and website. And he had been looking into the idea of writing a biography of Robert Persig. He'd met Robert Persig. He's the only guy I know who has. I haven't met him. He met Robert Persig at a conference in Liverpool where he could hold his own very nicely with all of the intellectual philosophy chit-chat. Um, and Persig let it be known that he was he didn't mind giving some of the information to Ian to be put online. But he certainly wasn't going to tell him everything because he didn't really want a biography written by anybody except his wife, his, his second wife, Wendy. And that uh, he probably expected this to happen after he, he had passed. And he's an older guy now. Who knows when that'll be? His family is very long lived. But he figured that all of the excitement was uh, sort of winding down to an end and he didn't need any more at this point. But it's not just his story, you see. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. And after I had finished the whole trip, and I had written this, a book, which I thought was a wonderful book, all about a road trip across America, and, and there was some personal angst in there and everything else, everybody, including Robert Persick, uh, who read my manuscript, told me that there was something missing from it. And they didn't know what it was, and they hoped I'd find out what it was. And it took me probably a couple of years to come to grips with the fact that the thing that was missing was the fabulous, fascinating story of Robert Persick and his book, not to mention a, a proper analysis of Zen and the art for those people who, who don't really understand it, in order to be able to give it some context in which to place the book uh, for a better understanding. Um, the trouble is that there was really no information out there about Robert Persick, other than that which he had chosen to tell. And as I just mentioned, it's not just his story to tell. Uh, his family was involved with this. Um, friends were involved with it, colleagues. But I, I realized that it was a terrific story. You literally have murder and madness and mayhem and, and, and the works going on in there. So I contacted various other people, including his ex-wife, including his estranged son. And they filled in steadily, slowly, but surely, over a fairly long period of time, they filled in all the gaps. Well, tell us a little bit about Persig. I mean, I read the, I actually read the whole book cover to cover. It's the kind of compulsive guy I am. Sure. And, and But as much as you get a, a feel for the man, there's a lot beyond the book. And could you talk about some of his history, which is, as you say, includes madness and murder? Beyond Zen and the Automotive yeah. Cycle Maintenance? Well, first of all, you have to understand that, and you probably do, but it can be confusing for people who are new to this book 
that it's a very intricately layered book and a complicated book in that the person, the, the narrator of the book is not Robert Persig. Robert Persig wrote it, uh, but, and he wrote it in the first person present. You know, I am doing this today stuff. But the guy who is narrating the book is not really Robert Persig. And you're never quite sure when it is him and when it isn't him and, and what liberties he's taken. Persig was quite clear in the book that he took liberties in, in the writing of it. It's not factual um, beyond a certain degree. But then it gets complicated because he introduces the character of Phaedrus, which was his personality before he underwent shock treatment for schizophrenia in the early 60s. And the narrator is the personality afterwards. Anyway, this, 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 this isn't answering your question. Um, the point about Robert Persig is that he was a, uh, an extremely intelligent guy from Minnesota, IQ of 170, which is, I'm sure, way beyond mine. I don't know what mine is, but it's not there. And he, he was a teacher and a journalist by training. And he eventually drove himself nuts at some point in his early 30s, literally, by agonizing over the question of what makes for a quality existence, what the definition of quality in your life would be. He also drove himself nuts because he was popping sleeping pills, um, because he was working himself into the ground, many, many different reasons. But his, there was a certain history in his family of um, instability, and his son, Chris, and to an extent his younger son, Ted, uh, also displayed this as well. Um, and in Zen and the Art, he admits to his riding companions who were with him for the first half of the trip, he admits to them that Chris has only just uh, begun displaying the signs of, the first signs of madness that he himself had gone through. Now when he wrote his book, of course, this was, it was in 1968 that he did the actual motorcycle trip uh, from Minneapolis all the way through to San Francisco. And when he wrote the book, he had been through the shock treatment and basically come back to restore a, a comfortable middle-class lifestyle. But he was nobody exceptional at that time. He was a, um, he was a writer of technical manuals for uh, things like rocket guidance systems and, and computers. He was, he was a geek before the geeks existed. But he really wanted to write this book and get it out of the system. And it took him six years from start to finish to do so. And then the fascinating thing is, is the effect that the success had on him. It was very successful. It sold 50,000 copies, I think, in the first three months. It's gone on to sell 5 million at least and still sells about 50,000 to 60,000 copies every single year to people who are just interested to read what he has to say, even, you know, 34 years later. But with all of the success, people started hounding him somewhat. Um, sometimes they wanted to know just what he was talking about and could he explain the book better. And other times they wanted to almost deify him because uh, he was... Well, certainly for those people who also had a history of instability, mental instability, 
he was a bit of a hero for them, somebody who'd come through the fire and, and come out the other side. Mm-hmm. So they had plenty of questions for him as to how to improve their own lives and how to explain his own philosophy and, and this and that and all the way down to what kind of motorcycle should I take on my next road trip. And he was a very, you know, he was a private guy who didn't appreciate this kind of treatment. And the book came out in the spring and in the summer, he just, late summer, he just shut down and he, has, he ran away. He, uh, he went and hid in the mountains um, in order to try to write his next book. And he, it took him a year or two before he sort of made himself, uh, made himself publicly available again. He then bought a boat, um, a nice uh, 30-something foot um, schooner, which he intended to sail around the world with his wife. But it never really worked out, and his marriage fell apart. And he had a second book that was just pressing on him. And he's known as a guy who's, who's reveled in writer's block. He's dealt with writer's block for all his life. That's really interesting. There's a there's a, a cadre of writers who who have had to fight this. Yeah, well, he he uh, he welcomed this. There's a whole passage in Zen and the Art about what he calls stuckness and what you do when you're stuck. And as he says, you don't give up on stuff and you don't walk away from it. You sit back and you think, well, why am I stuck? What is it about this? And then you analyze it and you analyze it out the yin-yang, frankly. But you figure out what the problem is and then you deal with it. And this is how he would deal with his writer's block. There would be plenty of days when he wouldn't write a thing all day long. He'd sit there and stare at a blank sheet of paper. Or there'd be some days when he'd write a paragraph and then throw it away. Or a sentence and throw it away. And that was it. But he eventually got his second book written. Uh, It's called Lila. And um, it was it was successful, though not nearly to the extent of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's, it is a much denser book. It's He believes it to be his better book. Many other people believe it to be his better book. And if you want to read um, Persig for the philosophy and for his uh, intellectual capacity to analyze and explain, then, yeah, Lila probably is the better book. But... It didn't have the success of Zen and the Art. I think he was probably a little disappointed by that. And that was in 91 that it came out. And after that, he basically just stepped aside completely again. And he's lived in seclusion ever since. He's happily married, I should say. And now has a, you know, he's got a daughter and a, and a, a young child, a young grandchild. Part of, the, um, uh, part of the good side of all of this is that his whole family, has, with the exception of Chris, of course, which is tragic, but other than that, he and his ex-wife and his estranged son have all been through these fires of madness and turmoil and come out at the other side as much better people. Now, you decided to follow his course. Yeah. Um, when you did this, did you take a, a notebook with you? Did you, take, did you know you were going to write the, this book when you un- undertook the trip? I hoped I was going to write a book. I told my wife I was going to write a book. Dangerous. Yeah, it sort of <laughs> helped to justify taking the time off. Sure, right? sure. Uh, she actually went on vacation with the kids and um, probably saw it as separate vacations. And, oh dear, you know, married for 10 years and we're already doing separate vacations. But she knew that I, I really had to get this out of my system. And I knew that I wanted to write a book one day, and this seemed to be as good a book as any. 
But as I say, I just intended to write a road trip book. It was going to be a motorcycle road trip book. And it was because I figured that there were plenty of, of books out there written by guys on their motorbikes who'd been around the world and through war zones and earthquakes and stuff like that. And they have massive adventures. But there aren't any books, I've never found them anyway, that just take you along on a motorcycle for a couple of weeks across America and introduce you to the appeal of it. Ex help to explain why it is that you would want to ride a motorcycle on a trip like this instead of taking the car or anything. So I wanted to write a book like that, frankly. When I came back, I, as I say, I, I wrote that book and it met with massive disinterest. And that was because, as somebody eventually told me, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is the elephant in the room. I was ignoring it, and you just can't ignore this book. What then astonished me was that nobody before had ever done anything with this book, this famous book. Um, it had, nobody else had, uh, people had, had, had been on road trips to follow it and had said, oh, I should write about this one day. But nobody ever had, and I don't know why. Now, you had, at the conclusion of your trip or shortly thereafter, you had a whole book, and you yourself were happy with it. Yeah, and, I thought it was great. And, but nobody else was. <laughs> uh, how did you approach rewriting this? I mean, didn't this kind of tear you up to, to rewrite it? Well, it did, and I'll tell you, Rick, I, I, I would hand my book around to people, and friends and family would read it and say, oh, that's a really great book, Mark. Uh, you, you, you missed a comma on page 23, and that was it, right? People who didn't know me were reluctant to read my book because it's an undertaking to read a, some hefty manuscript. And the vast majority of those people just never got back to me. It was like I'd taken my book and flushed it down the toilet when I handed it to them. But some people did get back to me, and they all said, it's a fine book, but it's missing something. And I didn't know what it was, and nobody could tell me what it was. So I did two things. One was that, at somebody's advice, I put my book on a shelf and refused to look at it for a calendar year. It was just on the shelf, because I thought it was great, right? I'd written it this way because that was the way I'd wanted to write it. It had a comma everywhere that there should be a comma, that sort of thing. And I couldn't figure out how to fix it. I was so close to it. So I put it on the bookshelf, and I refused to open it or look at it, or even look at the cover for a year, a calendar year. The other thing I did was I gave it to a friend who I sort of stumbled across. I remembered later that, oh, yeah, he had wanted to be um, a books editor, and he never was. He, he actually became a motorcycle journalist. And he sort of knew me, but not very well, and he sort of, he'd read Zen and the Art. So I said, his name was Bruce. I said, look, Bruce, I'm going to pay you some money here, cash. I want you to read my book and write me a report, only like a page of foolscap, but tell me if it's brilliant or if it isn't, or if it's missing something, what it's missing. And he was the guy who set me straight and said, you know what, I want an analysis of Zen and the Art, and I want to know more about this kooky guy who wrote it. Now, this was, this was halfway through that calendar year, and when he gave me that advice, I thought, oh, my God, I, I don't know if I understand Zen and the art well enough. Or even, even if I do, it's my understanding. It's not yours or anyone else's. So I don't know about that. And this kooky guy, well, there's not a lot of information out there about him. And for a reason. I mean, where do you, how do you start finding out about somebody like this? So I, uh, 
I left it on the shelf. At the end of the year, I pulled it off and I read my book and I thought, one was I thought, this is really boring. This is really badly written. I don't know what I was thinking of. This is crap in parts. And parts of it were just vain, glorious me, you know, going on about this and that. And I thought, well, that can go and that can go. And then the other part of me thought, you know what? I, I really, you know, it could do with like another subtext here. And he is absolutely right that I, it needs that whole Zen and the Art analysis. So I read Zen and the Art again and again, and I've probably read it, I reckon, 20 times by now. And found something different in it every single time. And I, um, I chipped away at uh, finding out about Robert Persick. So in fact, what I did was I wrote manuscript number two, which had as much biographical information as I could find, um, which wasn't that much. And I completed that so that I knew that I would have a book, 100,000 words that held together, but there were huge gaps in it. And then I sent that book out to, to Robert Persick and to a couple other people, but also to his ex-wife, who I had tracked down in Florida, and his estranged son, who I found in, in Switzerland, though he lives in Hawaii now. They read it and they said, and I just sent it to them and said, look, tell me if there's anything wrong in this book. So all I want to know, is there anything wrong? Robert Persig read it and he said, no, there isn't really anything wrong with it. Much better now. Thanks and goodbye. But the others read it and said, well, now that we know where you're coming from, you know, there's nothing that's wrong in it, but it's missing so much and let us help to fill in the gaps. And over a period of, of some time, half a year or so, they filled in all the gaps. Now, as you put together this second book, did you have to merging it with your first book? Was that a was that a challenge? Because there's lots there's lots of you in this in this book. Yeah, I know. Um, actually, it, it 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 was it was a great pleasure to do so, because I could see that some of the stuff from the first manuscript really didn't belong there. And as my buddy Bruce had said, he said, "Oh, leave that for the second book." I was very constructive of him. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but it had already been written, so it didn't really matter. I could just pull that out and replace it with other stuff. And then I had to sort of wind and wend in the uh, the story of, of Zen and the Art and the story of the Persics. And that was a challenge, but it was enjoyable to do as I found the right places to make it fit. So I didn't actually have a problem doing that at all. I could tell I had a much better book for it. Persig is notoriously reclusive. Yeah. Um, could you talk about your few, very few experiences with him? You've alluded to a couple of them. We've only corresponded by mail. We now correspond by email. Uh, but we just, he, I wrote him letters and he replied courteously and promptly every time. Uh, but his letters and his replies got shorter and shorter and shorter as he became more and more fed up with me. Uh, the final letter that he replied to, he literally just copied my letter and left big gaps between the paragraphs in which he, he wrote his replies. I think he was really fed up with me at this time because I was asking a lot of, well, some very difficult questions like, did you carry a gun in your saddlebags? I was told he had done so. John Sutherland had always thought he had carried a gun and he is a gun guy. Um, and other questions like, how has this changed your life? And, and you know, huge open-ended questions that he would just answer with difficult to say and that would be it 
But then when the book was completed and Knopf bought it, he then wrote me, I, I wrote to him to tell him, and he said that he, he wrote back and said he already knew. He'd seen the news of it, and congratulations. And he wrote me a long letter of congratulations in which he basically treated me like a fellow author instead of a hounding pest. And uh, that was probably the best letter I've ever received from anyone. I've been speaking with Mark Richardson. His first book is Zen and Now on the Trail of Robert Persig in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Hey, it was my pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.